Hello and welcome to B2B Better, a podcast for B2B professionals looking to be better than boring with their marketing. My name is Jason. I've spent the last 10 years building content, social and communication plans to help B2B companies hit their brand and revenue goals. Every week, I break down the strategies and tactics that you should be thinking about in a fun-sized, actionable chunks, usually with an expert from the field. This is real advice for B2B professionals who want to be better. Let's go. So today on B2B Better, I am joined by Alexa Heinrich, Social Media Manager for St. Petersburg College. How are you doing, Alexa? I am doing fantastic. How about you, Jason? I am doing phenomenally. Uh, we were talking a little bit before we came onto the podcast, but uh, that we have been talking to one another or tweeting at one another for a long time now. Um, and I'm so glad that we finally got the chance to sit down and speak to each other face to face, Zoom to Zoom. Yeah. Face, face to face with air quotes around it. Yeah, exactly. You can't see us air quoting right now, but we're both air quoting furiously. Um, we are going to be talking a little bit today about uh, digital accessibility, something that you, you write about and talk a lot about on social media. I know it's a cause that is, um, or something that's very, very, uh, that you're very passionate about and you are on a mission to educate more marketers um, on how to on how to do better, um, and that's something I certainly want to learn from you. But before we get into that, why don't you tell me a little bit about you, what's your background, and what you do today in social strategy? Sure. So I work for a community college in Florida. So I'm on the Gulf Coast of uh, Mexico. I do content creation. I manage and monitor the accounts. I educate my colleagues and students about social media, how to use it professionally, and how to make your content accessible. I'm actually originally from Chicago. So I started at a very large community college system in Chicago, where I was in charge of digital assets and social media. And that's where I kind of started learning about accessibility for social media. It was completely by accident. I was asked one day by our digital strategist if I was putting alt text on some of the websiters on our website, and I had no idea what she was talking about. <laughs> so I started to do more research into what accessibility meant specifically for social media since that was my primary job function, and I've just never stopped learning about it. So. I educate other digital marketers now about how they can create accessible social media content. And as I mentioned, you spend a lot of time talking about this on social media. You're invited to speak on, on podcasts and at events, but you also recently, fairly recently, started a new newsletter on Substack called Accessible Social. So tell me a little bit about that. Um, what was the reasoning behind starting it? Um, and also if you tell me about, uh, when you send it out, I'll also make sure to drop a link to it in the description of, of this episode so people can check it out themselves. I started accessible social in January, I believe January of this year. And I really just wanted a more dedicated space to talk about accessibility, to, you know, spotlight some of the good strategies around accessible content, some of the bad points with accessible content. Um, so I decided to start a newsletter, which a lot of people have done. I've really enjoyed it. I usually send it out every Monday morning, afternoon, somewhere, somewhere on Monday. I have paused it for April just so that I could 
take a little breather from all of the content creation that I do personally, because I do a lot besides the newsletter and writing. I have a weekly challenge that I do on uh, Tuesdays with alt text. So I just decided I need a breather. I need to take a little break for myself. So, but it will come back in May on the first Monday. I mean, I love, I love accessible social. And what I love about it is that, you know, you provide, and you know, everything you do on social media and, and other places is you provide real kind of actionable tips on, on how to improve the accessibility um, of, of the digital experience for marketers. Um, but I want to take it a step back from that and look at it from the point of view of a company that's evaluating accessibility in its, in its wider strategy, right? You know, can you talk to the opportunity that exists for businesses um, from both from both from both a moral and a commercial point of view, um, when it comes to considering accessibility in their strategy, of course. So, when it comes to digital accessibility for social media, everyone wants to know: Well, why should I be doing this? First and foremost, because you're a good human, you should be prioritizing the experience that other people have when they engage with your brand on social media. And when I say other people, I mean people who are disabled. There are people around the world who have disabling hearing loss. They are blind. They are hard of hearing. They are deaf blind. And they need different accommodations when it comes to digital spaces and digital content. So you should want to include everyone in the conversation you're having on social media. Um, Additionally, when you're making accessible social media content, you're more than likely reaching more people because more people can access it. It's a well-known statistic amongst digital marketers that 85% of internet users watch videos with the sound off. So you should be captioning your videos. You're going to reach more people. More people are going to engage with your content. Same thing with adding alt text to your images. If more people who use assistive technology can access your content, that's a good thing. As digital marketers, we want to reach as many people as possible. That is basically our main purpose boiled down to like the simplest denomination is we want to reach as many people as possible. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, doing some of the things that you you, you mentioned there, like just captioning videos, for example, there are tools out there now that can do that in the blink of an eye, right? It's it's mm-hmm. not something that, you know, from just a bandwidth point of view, you're going to be sitting there all day, you know, transcribing every piece of video content that you produce. It's it's from a tool's point of view, there's, there's a lot of options out there. Yes. I personally, for closed captions, really like just using YouTube. YouTube makes it super easy to do closed captioning for your videos even if you don't want to host it on YouTube. So I'll upload my videos as unlisted. I'll give YouTube a little bit of time. It will auto caption my video for me. And then I can go in and edit those captions so they're accurate. Then all I need to do is download my video and download the SRT file from that video. And I can use it on Facebook. I can use it on LinkedIn. I can use it on Twitter. It's really easy to do that. For open captions, I really like the app Mix uh, Mix Captions. So it's 
very, very easy to use. You can shoot your videos outside of the app, which I prefer, and then you upload it. It takes a little bit of time to transcribe your captions, and then you can edit them for the placement, for the accuracy, for the branding, which is just phenomenal. I love that you can do that with your open captions. So yeah, there's a lot of tools out there that make it pretty easy. So you painted a, a, a good picture there about you know, why people should be investing in, why companies should be investing in accessibility. And I think everyone would agree with that, right? Like everyone should agree with that, that investing in accessibility uh, from, a, from a moral point of view is obviously the right thing to do. But also just from a commercial point of view, it means that you can reach more people. And as you very rightly put it, that is what we are trying to do as marketers. We're trying to reach as a bigger group of people who are interested in our products or our services as possible. For companies who have perhaps never really considered accessibility um, and have now made the decision that they do want to do it, th there's going to have to be a shift, I'd imagine, in their mentality, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's, it's one thing saying, you know, we want to do this. It's another thing actually making it into a habit of of implementing it across your communications and your content when, you know, you're spinning a bunch of plates all the time. I'd imagine it's, you know, an easy thing when you're up against a deadline to just say, uh, you know, captions are going to take me an extra half an hour and I, and I just need to get this out. What would be your advice in that kind of situation? How do you make it, a f how do you make it front and center when creating a, a strategy as a business? It's, it's definitely worthwhile to have the conversation with the digital team but also with everyone else in that chain of command, essentially, because it's not just the responsibility of the marketing team. It's the responsibility of everyone to care about this and then figuring out how you can bake accessibility best practices into your process. So for me personally, at the college that I work for, I never have to caption anything unless it's like something that I'm shooting personally from my phone if I'm out at an event. The video team that I work with knows they're either doing open captions on a video or they're supplying me with an SRT file or they're just doing it themselves and uploading it to our YouTube channel with captions. They know that that's baked into the process and it's a standard for us. Um, I've also started to educate some of my coworkers around how they send me content. So a lot of them know I'm not going to post your flyer online. I'm going to use it for information and then find an image to go with that content. So a lot of them will just send me the content that they need posted, knowing that I'm going to use it to craft the best possible post or tweet with it. Uh, some colleagues even send me images and then write out the alt text for me in the email of like, here's the image description, which is just the loveliest thing ever. I love when people do that, that they understand this is part of the process. So learning the ways that you can get everyone on board with accessible content creation is huge. It makes such a difference. And then people just understand the ideal content for social media if we want to keep it inclusive. You mentioned there about getting everyone on board and that that translates, I imagine, all the way up to the top of an organization, right? All the way up to senior leadership, to, to the C-suite, you know, like like anything right you know like like culture or you know or strategy it all funnels up to the top so what would be your advice for someone who's listening to this and saying you know yes i agree with alexa we need to do this we need to make this into a habit we need to make this into part of our into our process and our strategy i need to get my leadership team on board with investing in digital accessibility what would be your advice on how they could go about doing that 
It's a three-step argument that I have. I teach this one to everyone. So, of course, you reach for the compassionate argument first if we should just care about what our followers experience with our brand on social media. If that doesn't work, then you take the marketing approach, explaining we can reach more people, more people will be able to access our content. If that doesn't work, then I reach for the scary argument, which is we could be sued. We could be sued if someone feels so passionately that we are inaccessible with our content. We see companies now all the time getting sued for not having digitally accessible websites. It is not far-fetched to believe that social media will soon follow suit with that. We are going to see companies, brands, organizations start getting sued when disabled users are unable to access that content. So I do believe that the C-suite, leadership, whatever you have within your organization should deeply care about accessibility, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because you don't want to legally get in trouble with this. It is better to be proactive about the content that you produce rather than reactive because you got in trouble. And in fact, if you are proactive about it, you know, if anything, it just reflects positively on your brand, mm-hmm. right? Because better to be the person, better to be the company that's, you know, taking a leadership position in, you know, uh, in, in pushing forward for digital accessibility rather than be the one, as you say, that's, you know, getting a story published in the New York Times that they're being sued for X number of million dollars because they didn't, they didn't invest in it early on, right? Yes. And we, the college that I work for, we recently switched up how we do our alt text on Instagram because there is a field for it. But I had gotten feedback recently on my personal work that it doesn't always work with like iPhones for some reason with iPhone screen reader. So it's actually better to write it in the caption of your Instagram. So that's what I started to do with the college as well is I'll write our normal caption. I'll do two hard returns and then I'll write image description and write out what my alt text would be. And we actually got a message from a student shortly after we started doing that, you know, just basically saying, hey, I noticed that you're doing this and I really appreciate it. I personally don't need an image description, but my sister is blind. So thank you for doing this. I'm curious to know, because obviously you're, you're in the States, I'm here in the UK. I am not aware, at least in the UK, of any laws specifically that um that require businesses to um invest in digital accessibility we do have an organization over here in in the uk called ofcom who are responsible for um you know uh governance around tv stations um the bbc itv Mm -hmm. places like that um and they require that uh organizations like like those like the bbc and itv two two major broadcasters here in the uk um do invest in in digital accessibility and they require like 97 or 99 percent of all content that's published on things like iplayer which is the netflix equivalent for bbc um to have things like closed captions and audio description and what have you and they're penalized if not but that is a that is an industry imposed um uh, that is an industry-imposed goal, as opposed to a kind of, you know, governmental one. Um, in the, in the U.S., are you aware of any kind of legal requirements for marketers to create accessible content? For social media, no. It's mm. very hard to 
enforce digital accessibility for social media because it's still so new and, and evolving. I mean, we only got alt text for Instagram a few years ago. So it's, it's very, it's a very gray area. Now we do have things like the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA, which is more for brick and mortar facilities. It has been used in lawsuits involving websites. I have yet to hear of a lawsuit involving social media and accessibility. It's, it's coming. It has to be there. There's no way that this huge part of the internet can continue to exist without some form of law that regulates how accessible a brand or organization's content has to be. It's, there's no way that it's going to continue on without it. There's a documentary on Netflix called Crip Camp. Have you ever seen that? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I watched it because the, 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 the law that you just cited, was it called the ADA? Mm-hmm. I, this documentary is called Crip Camp. It was, it was executive produced by Michelle and Barack Obama. I think it was one of their first, their first kind of pieces of content after they struck the deal with Netflix a couple of years ago. And it tells the story of um, this summer camp uh, that was up in, in the northeast of America somewhere that was for children who, who had um, physical and mental disabilities. And um, it happened over a period of years, and there were these kids that kind of formed these friendships during during that camp um, and went on to become, I, I, be, I believe this, so don't quote me on this, um, but I believe that the, the kids that met in that camp went on to you know, lead the charge that resulted in the ADA being... Um, brought before Congress and, and signed into, signed into law. Um, they did like a stand in, in the, in the government mm-hmm. house and, um, they were there for like three weeks or something. Um, and as you're talking, it kind of feels to me like that was a revolution, you know, there mm-hmm. were the, this was before kind of wheelchair ramps were, I believe, a legal requirement in right. buildings. Um, and it was a revolution that was led by, um, people living with disabilities, um, to change the physical world around, to, to, to change the physical world around them and make it more accessible, it stands to reason that as we spend more of our time and more of our lives online, you will see that second revolution um, of people who are leading the charge to create a more accessible digital world that we can all we can all live and operate in. Yes, and I hope that revolution comes soon because it's a damn shame. Mm. It's a shame that people don't care more about creating content that everyone can enjoy, that everyone can access. So we all kind of come to the internet for a lot of the same things, no matter our level of physical or cognitive ability. 100%. So I was a fair, I was, I personally was fairly uneducated. Um, and I still, I still probably am on, on making content digitally accessible. But one thing that you've inspired me to do is in, is start including alt text. Um, on the images I use on social media and in my newsletter. It's something I, I didn't do, but we've been, I've been following you for a long time and you talk a lot about it. Um, and you've also got that weekly, um, that weekly contest uh, on Twitter. Um, and uh, that inspired me to start including it on my posts. And for me, it feels like it's fairly low-hanging fruit, right? Like anyone can do it. It doesn't take that much time more than it does writing the copy of the post itself. Um, in fact, probably quicker because, you know, you're describing, describing the image, um, as opposed to trying to think of something kind of witty and creative to say, um, that obviously that can be part of alt text, but anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. Can you explain what is alt text? Um, and what are the best 
practices for creating it. So alt text is a short physical summary of an image. So basically you're describing what you see in a JPEG, a PNG, or even a GIF. It allows uh, people who use screen readers, so that's an assisted device, or text-to-speech programs to know what that image is of. So if I'm blind or visually impaired, I need assisted technology to understand what an image is of. And alt text allows that to be a reality. So on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, even Pinterest now, they have fields for adding alt text. Sometimes you see it as alternative text, sometimes it's as image description, but either way, it's so that you can make your images accessible. As far as best practices go, as I learned about alt text, I really stopped using images that have flattened text on them because JPEGs, PNGs, GIFs do not allow for readable text. So basically, I can't highlight the text that's on a JPEG and copy and paste it somewhere else. It's flattened as an object. Assisted devices cannot pick up on that typically. So I try to either not use images with flattened text, or if I do, I have to put all the flattened text into the alt text. Um, I typically keep my alt text relatively short. It's about the length of one tweet. So 280 characters, give or take. I try to focus on the big details, the most important details. So what is contextually important in my image as it relates to the rest of my post. So did I repeat myself in the alt text, what I had already written in the tweet, stuff like that. It's a very subjective exercise. No one's going to be perfect. Your alt text is not going to be the same for you know the image that you see versus what someone else sees as evident by the exercise that I host every week on Tuesdays. I share an image and I encourage people to write their best alt text for it. Everyone writes something different, every single person, including myself. It's very interesting to see. If someone wanted to um, get some inspiration for, uh, for, for, if they were setting out to kind of start creating alt text for the images they use across social media and they just wanted some inspiration beyond um, uh, taking part in your Tuesday challenge, which I would highly recommend, um, can you can can you can we go out and and see alt text or is it something that can only be picked up by screen readers? Typically, it's usually something that's only picked up by screen readers, unless you're like me, where I write my alt text for my Instagram images right in the caption, just so it's a little bit clearer. This is what I'm doing. This is my alt text. Plus, I'm very wary of how good the alt text field is on Instagram. Um, if you use TweetDeck like I do, if an image has alt text on it, you can just hover over the image and a little pop-up will show up with the alt text written in a box. Or you can use Google Chrome, right-click on an image, use Inspect, and then there will be a tab for accessibility where you will see the alt text. So when uh, President Joe Biden's new website was launched in January, I went and looked at it, snooped around, and used that a feature on every single one of his images on his website and every single one had alt text. So I was like really proactive. I was like, I want to see how, how good his team is at accessibility for their website. And they were, they were very good. That's good. I won't ask what it was like on former president Trump's website. <laughs> it was, it was not good. It was not, not good. good at all. 
even the even just the regular copy was was pretty terrible. Um, yes. But I mean, that's you know that's just the whole vibe with that. <laughs> um, if if someone listening to this podcast uh, wanted to start doing one thing today to make their content more accessible beyond our alt text, what else could it be? What do you think it should be? They could do my favorite thing, which is putting their hashtags in camel case. So for anyone who's not familiar with that, it's also called Pascal case and title case. Basically, if you have a multi-word hashtag like social media rocks, you're going to capitalize the first letter in each word. Capital letters, spaces, punctuation are basically indicators to assistive devices of this is a different word or this is a different phrase. So instead of saying your hashtag is one long, weird, blended word, it's going to pronounce each word as a separate word and say it correctly. So I always send out the little uh, reminders on Wednesday. Hey, it's Wednesday, it's hump day. So put your hashtags in camel case. Very memorable. Uh, is that something that you came up with camel case or is, <laughs> is that? <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny because I get people who are programmers telling me, well, that's not camel case. Camel case came from uh, computer programming. It's a language formatting, I guess. And camel mm. case in programming is the first word is in lowercase and then every word after that is capitalized. For whatever reason, when it made the jump over to marketing world, it became every single word the first letter is capitalized. And so I get people telling me, they're like, that's not right. And I'm like, I don't know. As long as you do it, either Just way it make, works. Make your hashtags readable. That's yeah. what I care about. <laughs> Plus camel case is also easier for literally everyone to read. It's just how the way our eyes move and, mm. and absorb information. It just makes it easier for literally everyone. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think talking about things that we can do is important, but also things that we shouldn't do. One of the things that um, sticks in my mind uh, is you tweeting about, you know, you see these kind of Instagram posts where people are using kind of like fancy fonts, like, you know, that are actually just combinations of different symbols and stuff. Um, and you shouldn't do that, right? No. So there are Unicode characters that are generated by external websites to make your type, your copy appear in different weights, styles, fonts. I see it a lot on Instagram. It's made its way over to Twitter now. It's it's all over the place on Clubhouse bios. You should not do that because not every assistive device can read those characters. So my iPhone personally does not identify them as readable characters. It either skips over them completely, so there's just a mm. gap left in your content, or there are certain typefaces that get turned into completely indistinguishable noises and you can't understand any part of it and it just it goes on i had a example tweet that i used in my presentation it should only logically take you like 10 seconds to read it it took my phone screen reader two and a half minutes to get through the entire thing that's crazy yeah it's, and, it was wild and anyway the effect the just the aesthetic of them anyway i'm just not a fan of like you know except at putting accessibility for, aside for one second they just don't look very good <laughs> no they they look terrible um i have a design background and i'm a huge typography uh obsessive i mm -hmm. hate those unicode characters there are maybe one or two where it's just basically a bold version of a sans serif font where i'm like 
acceptable from a design standpoint, never acceptable from an accessibility standpoint. And how does that translate? How does that translate over to um, the use of emojis? Right, I, I wouldn't know how how are emojis picked up by uh, screen readers and things like that. So every emoji has its own unique description assigned to it. It's part of how it's coded. Essentially, you kind of see it when you go to emojipedia.org. They have like the U plus and then a number. So the U is Unicode and then a number. A screen reader is going to read that description aloud or translate it into Braille, depending on what some someone is using for their device. So if you're throwing emojis in the middle of content or you're using them excessively, using them as bullet points is very popular right now, that could potentially be making your content kind of confusing because to my knowledge, most assistive devices aren't going to say emoji and then read what the emoji is. It just rolls on through. It just reads the description of the emoji. So when it comes to emoji, I always suggest that you use them sparingly and then put them at the end of your post and tweets. So all of your written text should be the important part. And then putting the kind of decorative, frivolous uh, icons at the end. That makes sense. So don't include them in the middle or, or use them as bullet points or things like that. Because as, yeah. they're, being, as they're being read by the, the, the reader, you know, they could just be, you could be in the middle of a sentence and then suddenly it's just like shouting like fire or something like that. Yes, um, exactly. Um, yeah. There are instances where it does make sense. You just have to double check the description of the emoji on emojipedia.org because like the pizza slice is it's pizza. It's mm. pizza and it's usually always pizza. So you could say, come to the quad at two o'clock for a slice of blah, you know, pizza with the emoji yeah. and then keep writing text after that. It would probably be fine. But again, that's about testing your content to make sure it sounds okay. And on, and on that point, I mean, how, how does how does one test their content? How does one, you know, um, under, understand how a screen reader or something like that would pick up um, how something is written or how characters are, are expressed? So I use my iPhone. It has mm -hmm. a text-to-speech program built into it. It's called VoiceOver. If you have an Android device, it's called TalkBack in the accessibility suite. So all smartphones typically have text-to-speech programs built into them under the accessibility section in settings. I am very practiced with mine. I use it all the time to understand how my content sounds or how a brand's content sounds. So I'll test tweets. People send me stuff all the time of, is this accessible? And I use my screen reader, that's basically my phone, to test it. Um, I have unpublished Facebook pages and a private Twitter account where I throw content before I release it to the rest of the world so that I can publish it in a safe space where no one else can see it and then use my screen reader to understand is this actually accessible or does it sound terrible? So I always suggest that brands and organizations do that. Having an unpublished Facebook page, a private Twitter account, a private Instagram account is a great way to test content before you release it to the rest of the world. Great advice. For I would I would imagine that you know for some for some marketers, particularly if they're working in a in a small team or even indeed a team of one, um, but realize that they need to take it upon themselves to make their content more accessible. It can be it could be a little bit overwhelming, right? On like where where should I start? Because obviously this is not just one thing. It's not there's not just one disability that we're trying to 
trying to cater for here, it, that there is a lot of things that you could potentially build into a digital media accessibility plan. Um, and, you know, sometimes when, when you are overwhelmed with, with choice, the paradox of choice, you end up doing nothing. Um, so where could people go to find out more information about where they can start? Um, I'm thinking, you know, obviously there are things that they could do to self-learn, follow your newsletter, for example, um, but obviously there are loads of other resources I'm sure you could share. Um, wh where else could they go? Are there agencies that kind of specialize in this kind of thing? You know, wh where does someone start? I am unaware of any agencies specifically for social media content. Um, I have built part of my website, my personal website out to be a resource hub for digital marketers who want to learn more about accessible social media content because when I was learning about it, I was in like 50 different places online trying to learn more and I'm still learning, but it was very difficult because most of what's out there is specifically for websites and web pages. It's not so much about social media. It's about how do I make my website accessible? So that was hard for me. And I decided to take it upon myself to kind of build one place on the internet where people could come to learn about creating accessible social media content. I'm building that out on my website. I'm trying to build a class through Teachable where they can learn about it. I'm writing a book. I have a newsletter. So I'm doing a lot of things to try and make it easier for veteran digital marketers, for new digital marketers, for marketing students to learn about this because I don't want everyone to have to go through the same process that I did. And just like what you said, you're still learning. Everyone kind of has the same reaction when I talk about accessibility for social media. Of, I didn't know about this. And it's not an it's not an individual failing. It's an industry failing that the industry doesn't care about it. So we don't educate the people within the industry. We need to talk about it more. Right? Yes, we need we need to talk about it more. We need to be more transparent about it. And we need to be comfortable talking about the experience that disabled users have when they're online. Absolutely. I think for, you know, I come from an in-house world. So I think for the in-house marketers listening to this, it's about holding our, it's about holding our leadership teams to account, you know, seeking out this budget building the business case for it. And you presented the beginning of this podcast, you know, th three arguments that you can make the moral argument, the, the marketing argument, and then the scary legal argument. And hopefully you don't have to go down that far, but still a useful tool to be aware of. So for in us in our house marketers, it's about seeking that budget, seeking that investment and seeking the, the, um, uh, the backing of our leadership teams to, to support this kind of push. And then I'd imagine on the agency side, you know, it's also about, it's about holding your clients to account, mm -hmm. you know, um, and uh, painting a picture to them on the benefits that they will get as a business to um, making their content more accessible. But ultimately, as you say, it comes down to us all as people who are operating in this profession to be talking more about this and to be, you know, holding each other more to account on making sure that our content is accessible. It, um, it can also help to get your legal department involved in creating policy around, because most people have social media policies for their organizations and brands. If you have a section in there about accessibility, it really helps because legal of anyone legal is going to understand the most because they definitely don't want to be involved in a lawsuit. 
So having them on your side can go a long way because then you literally put it in writing of this is what Mm -hmm. we need to do so we don't get sued. And the earlier you do all of this, right, the Mm -hmm. earlier you're having this conversation, the easier it's going to be. Because I'd imagine the bigger the company gets, the more content you're out there producing. If it's not part of your process, Mm -hmm. the harder it's going to go be be to roll that back and make it part of... um, you know, the daily habits of, of that content creation, social media team. So the earlier you talk about it today, you know, set up a call with your, with your team tomorrow, your boss tomorrow, have a conversation about this. And obviously, you know, you should check out your, uh, your, your newsletter and your website, um, for more information. Are there any B2, are there any B2B or, or B2C brands beyond, um, President Biden's, uh, website that you feel are nailing their accessibility practices so that our, our listeners can go and be inspired. So just about any organization that fights for the rights of others. So like the ACLU here in the United States is a good example. They make their content accessible. There are organizations that I've talked to previously that are making the effort to be more accessible. So John Deere, GoFundMe, Um, I know that the Grand Ole Opry in Nashville definitely makes an effort because their marketing person, Jen, is amazing and just values the information that I share so much. So she's an excellent person to talk to as well because she has to implement that basically by herself. So she makes a really good effort, but it's really hard for me to access how accessible a brand or organization is just because I can tell you, are they using these best practices? Yes or no. I cannot tell you because I am not physically disabled how well they're actually doing it because I do not rely on those practices myself. That's a really important point. Um, and I'm just trying to think what's, what's the answer there? Is there an answer? You know, is, is there a body you know, a, a governing body or something that you know businesses could refer to in order to get that additional context. Because, like you say, you know, it's binary. You're either doing alt text or you're not. You mm-hmm. know, um, you're you're either putting emojis in the middle of your of your social media posts or you're not. But how that actually plays for people who are living with a disability um, is a, is another thing entirely. Um, and even I'm that, not sure what the answer is. Then. Yeah, even that is subjective because again, writing alt text is very subjective. Some people prefer it short. Some people prefer it long. I've had users tell me that they don't like emojis in the middle of their content because it gets confusing. I've had blind users tell me that they do like it because it adds context. So it's it's on a person-by-person basis, but there are things that, you know, I, I always put emojis at the end because I'm like, you're still getting the context, but it's not in the middle of all the written So there's never going to be a good answer other than try, try to make your content more accessible. It's never going to be perfect, but trying and actually making the attempt is progress and progress is better than nothing. That's a great note to end this podcast on. Alexa, I've learned so much in the last uh, 30 minutes or so that we've been talking about this. And um, I know the listeners of B2B Better will have as well. You mentioned your your newsletter, um, which and your your Twitter profile, where you run the competitions and talk um, and share a lot of wisdom around around digital accessibility. I will drop the links to both of those in the description of this episode for anyone who's interested in checking them out. Um, is there 
anything else that whilst we've got you um you'd like to you'd like to shout out about or promote or draw people's attention to i would just want to say thank you to everyone who in the past year has taken the information that i shared to heart and really made an effort with their social media content whether that's personal or professional to make it more accessible because it means a lot to me i get messages all the time asking me different questions about accessibility but the ones that mean the most to me are just the ones that are thanking me for sharing the content, especially when they're coming from someone who actually relies on these best practices. I had a young woman who is blind and she's very recently blind, send me the loveliest message a few months ago. And I cried because it was just, it was basically telling me that what I was doing actually was making an impact and it meant so much to me. So thank you to everyone who is helping make that impact. Well, that's 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 beautiful and uh, I'll I'll just say for everybody, thank you for all the great work that you're doing and I can only speak for myself, but you've inspired me and you know, I've 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 made I've changed things that I was doing as a direct result of, you know, what you're teaching uh the, the marketing community. So keep it up. Thank you so much. Alexa Heinrich, thank you so much for coming on B2B Better. We'll speak to you soon. And that's it for this episode of B2B Better. If you found it useful, go ahead and leave a rating, a review, or just shoot me a DM on Twitter telling me so. It will make my day. You can find me at Jason R. Bradwell. Also, why not check out my weekly newsletter, The B2B Byte, where I break down marketing strategies and tactics for B2B leaders into fun size, actionable chunks. You can find the link in the description of this episode. If you've got any questions or there is a burning topic that you'd like to hear me talk about on B2B Better, or you'd like to appear on an episode, you can connect with me on Twitter or find me on LinkedIn. See you next time.